morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are when you happen to watch this podcast. I'm Ali Amagasu, and this is Cloud Unfiltered. Today, um, I have my my co-host is back, Ballard Benincosa. He's been traveling a while and getting into fights on the road, but we're yeah. happy. Yay, good to be back here with you, Ali. <laughs> I really can't see your black eye. Hardly good, all, good. So been enough time passed so <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a cisco homie on the show today uh his name's pete johnson he's a technical solution architect in our global partnership organization gulp that down with a little bit of water i know right <laughs> welcome pete thanks so much for having me uh ali and val big fan of what you guys do here thank you we're thrilled to have you on and we're a big fan of you pete so that's excited right. to hear what goes you on see, in this. you say that and then that sets expectations right <laughs> oh yeah oh, I oh yeah it oh, does. Yeah. You got to bring right. it now. This is going to be right. the best show ever <laughs> right here, right now. All right. Well, if you listen to the show, you know how it starts, man. Uh, what are you into? Um, how did you No, Not what are you into? How did you get into tech? What is so the, my, the essence of Pete? If you could, please. my story starts like a lot of ones do with a really good teacher. Um, when I was in sixth grade in the fall of 1981, my sixth grade teacher had a computer in the classroom, which for the time was you know, you might as well have had a space alien in the classroom. That was how, how rare that stuff was. And if you had free time at, you know, if you finished your math early, you finished your English lesson, whatever the case might be, you could go back and you could do things on this computer. Only the way that he structured it was he put together like this self-paced seven uh, course sequence that the further you advanced in the class, the more time that you could reserve on the computer. So like the first lesson was you had to read the first chapter of the manual and you had to identify, you know, what's the monitor, what's a keyboard, what's a CPU, um, and those kind of things. And if the further you got, and eventually that started getting into uh, basic programming, literally with the Microsoft basic interpreter that was available at the time. So this was a, this is a, a TRS-80 computer, the, the old mm -hmm. black and white one. And it had a Galaxian clone on it. So if you advanced further, you got to book more and more time and you could play Galaxian while you, after you, if you got your math homework done early. So I completed the sequence by like October and uh, sort of earned my in-class video game time. I asked for an Intellivision that Christmas. I received a TRS-80 color computer. So my parents kind of were, uh, forward thinking in that regard. And back then, that that whole scene was very much a hobbyist scene. You, you would subscribe to magazines, and they would, as absurd as this sounds right now, by today's modern standards, they would print program listings in magazine articles. So I had to learn how to type so that I could type them in. And then you could alter them because they just gave you the source code. And if, you know, they were little like text Text-based dungeons games were a lot of them. Or like there was a text-based boxing game where I didn't like the name of the boxers. You can change it, and you you could change like what the what percentages of of hits happen. And because you had access to all this source code, you could you had to learn by typing it in, and you could alter it the way you wanted to. And then we were those things had zero hard drives. You were loading things directly into memory, and you were saving them off on cassette cassette tapes, if you can imagine that. And that's how I learned programming, and it kind of stuck. Oh, man. Cool teacher. Yeah. I know. May this I say, it sounds like you somewhere. should have been like in a club 
with Steve Jobs you know, in a garage or something. Well, it's weird. Like, if you read stuff, I mean, I'm certainly not to the level of those guys. No one would ever say that. But if you read stuff about, like, Jobs and um, and Gates, like, Gates Gates had access to a mainframe when he was about the same age in, you know, in the, in the early 60s. And he did things like programmed it so that he could get his friends and girls he liked get placed in his classrooms throughout throughout his, his <laughs> educational life. And yeah, it's like access to that stuff is such a big deal. Um, and I was fortunate to just have this very special teacher that made it so that I had access to that stuff. And, you know, I've been making a living at it for 25 years now. Now it's, it's amazing now um, how that all that stuff now is so widely and freely available to anybody. Yeah. And, you know, we, we didn't have that back then. And, and uh, you just think of all the tech talent that, can come from all that or even even more recent like about what was life like before and after stack overflow oh yeah when you could right? like you had to have a question. buddy that had already done something that you didn't know how to do that you could ask questions for and now you can literally type in you know what you're trying to do like you know like java stack algorithm or you know you, you could copy and paste whatever error message you're seeing and somebody has asked it on Stack Overflow and somebody has answered it. That That's yeah. a huge difference in the approachability of programming that, that yeah, certainly is way better than ordering a magazine and typing in all the source code yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Also Absolutely. the way that teacher positioned it though, I have to say by making it a reward instead yeah, of something system. you had to do. Because the first time I came in contact with computers was really about 1984, Apple IIe's. Yeah, and we were all being forced to program them, and and that was not the way to go about it. It made it feel like torture instead of something where your curiosity was peaked and you wanted to learn it. No, it was all carrot the way that I experienced. Yeah, it. very yeah. little stick. All that's, carrot. That's not what my daughter's getting right now. She's getting <laughs> stick from me. She's so. getting some stick. Oh, very much so. Yeah. So that's hmm. so funny. Oh God. Well, well, Pete. Um, I thank you for that for that background. That helps us uh, understand the man behind the answers a little bit. Um, but part of the reason we want to talk to you, or a lot of the reason, is that you've got some insights into uh, this uh, Cisco-Google partnership in a way that maybe a lot of other folks don't. I know our past couple conversations with guests, we've, we've uh, dipped into discussion about Istio a little bit, but that's a very specific component yeah. of a much larger partnership with you know, a lot more going on. So can you tell me a little bit about, about this partnership, about how it came into being to start off with before we even yeah. get into what it consists of or, or what's going to happen with it? So I got brought into the conversation at the end of last summer. I want to say like August or September. And it was the first Cisco project I ever worked on that I had to sign an NDA before I could work on it. Hmm. So that, that tells you like the level of importance that both companies felt like uh, this partnership uh, was going to weigh in the market. And I came in when a bunch of the engineering decisions had already been made. And basically it was, you know, hey, you guys have a public cloud. We've got some private cloud infrastructure, and a bunch of other things. How can we sort of put our hands together? You guys had Laxon a couple episodes ago who talked about the, the more broader hybrid cloud strategy that Cisco has. And one of the key elements of that is we're kind of Switzerland when it comes to these things. Um, I mean, we have this great relationship with Google. We have a slightly different relationship with Microsoft and what's going on with uh, Azure Stack for some of the you know, the Cisco hardware adheres to their very strict hardware standards so that you can run uh, Azure Stack um, on, on-prem. Uh, we've got a slightly different relationship with Amazon uh, and some of the things that they're doing uh, specifically with Greengrass. And I know Val wants to talk about some of that a little bit later. 
Yes, um, I do. Uh, we just, you know, if you happen to go to AWS reInvent, if you went by the Cisco booth, uh, we now have uh, Greengrass running on IOX routers. Hmm. Um, and so they're very different relationships that we have with kind of the big three public cloud vendors. But because the way that we approached the strategy, because we kind of didn't get into this game of competing directly with any of these public cloud providers, we're able to secure these very special relationships where it makes sense, right? Like in the Amazon example, they've got this great Greengrass runtime, but they got to go find devices in the field to run it on. Well, it just so happens, you know, we have a couple hundred thousand routers out in the field. So how about us and put that together with that? In the Google sense, it was, hey, we have some special things we want to start to do with Kubernetes and uh, consuming public cloud services for application logic that's running on-prem. We want to be able to do that in not just not just a, a simple VPN, but with some enhanced security. And, and those are some of the things that we can bring to the table with uh, our friends at Google. You, you may have seen as part of the launch, there's this, there's this diagram that, uh, that Kip Compton likes to show that kind of talks about how the two companies have complementary offerings relative to one another. If I can bring up my cheat sheet so I can read it off real quick. So like for us at Cisco, we bring to the table networking and security, private cloud infrastructure, uh, multi-cloud management through Cloud Center, which is what, how I came to Cisco through the Clicker acquisition. And, and we have deep relationships with uh, IT operations in the enterprise. If you contrast that with Google, right, they've got, they, they run hyperscale cloud services and have been doing it since that was ever a thing. They're really big on microservices and containers. They do really well with metering and analytics on APIs. And of course, they have a great relationship with the developer community. So we kind of really fit together really well and complement each other really well based on the strengths of each of the individual companies. And, and that's why it kind of made sense for us to do something together. Excellent. Well, thanks for that insight. Um, you know, I think the question that it begs, so we got together, we said, yeah, let's let's do things together. Uh, what's really happening? Or can you tell me yeah, anything so, that's really happening? So what are we doing together, I guess, is the, the question. We're going about this. I, I'm going to say, and I, and I hope this doesn't offend any of any of my teammates or anybody else <laughs> at Cisco. We're going about this in a very un-Cisco-like way. Um, I'm super offended. And, and I say that because <laughs> it's, it's not like, we didn't come down from on high and be like, this is the product set that will save you. Like, it, it's it's very much, a, okay, we've got some ideas. We're going to put some things together. Let's get together some early access company cu customers, and let's have them tell us what's right and what's wrong about this. So the formal announcement happened about a week before Partner Summit uh, here in the fall. And if you follow Cisco at all, you probably know 90 plus percentage, 90 plus percent of our revenue comes in through our channel partner ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, so we announced it at, we, we strategically chose that because the the, the channels and the global uh, integrators and those kind of people, they're pretty core to how we deliver anything. Um, so I was part of a group that we had a little room off in the Omni Hotel where we briefed the top 15 global system integrators and channel partners in the existing Cisco ecosystem. And we gave them a NDA behind the scenes look as to what exactly this announcement really means. You've seen some of the high level stuff and I can talk about some of those things in detail. Some of those things I can't quite yet. Um, but the way this is rolling out is, so we made this announcement in October, November. We started out this kind of demo roadshow. We're trying to recruit early access customers. Those early access customers will get to go through a proof of concept and tell us some things that are right and wrong about it. 
Then we'll have like a, a beta program uh, later on before it goes uh, GA sometime this summer. And GA, for those of you listening, is general availability. So there's something that's happening that uh, if a customer is interested in learning more about, they can sign an NDA and then they can speak with you and, and your team and maybe get involved in helping shape uh, whatever this product is going to be. Is that what I understand? Yeah, that's okay. what you understand directly. And it's, it's pretty low, you know, it's pretty low tech way of making yourself available to this. I mean, internally, we kind of went around to the different account teams and talked about like, so who, who's on who's on sort of the, the doorstep of adopting Kubernetes in some way? Because those are really the core, those are really kind of the core uh, constituents we're looking for as part of an early access program. If, if kind of you've already bought into some Kubernetes and you already have some of your own uh, methodology for dealing with deployments and dealing with connecting to public cloud services and securing uh, network connections and things like that, you probably have already gone down a road that's slightly different than the one that we're trying to come up with this gener more general and more reusable solution for. So we're yeah. trying to find groups that are, I, I'm about to embark on some big Kubernetes journey and I need some help because there's so many choices to be made. I need some help figuring out what those choices are. And then I need to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody if I have problems with it. And so, that, so yeah, that's the part that we're at now. If you're listening to this and you think that, that you might qualify for that, you can you know, reach out through your Cisco sales rep or through uh, whoever your fa favorite channel partner. Or if you want, you can email me if you want, just petercjo at cisco.com. I'd be happy to get you involved in the process as well. So what what is the ideal person like that would be qualified for this or that would be a great candidate yeah. for this? And if you could just summarize that real quick. So one of the cool things about this solution is there's kind of a there's kind of two audiences that this serves. Um, it serves the IT ops, uh, the traditional Cisco uh, infrastructure kind of team, and then it also serves the development teams that it, are that teams and customer in a lot of ways. So we, we see this all the time, and, and Val, I know you've seen this in the field too. That one of the struggles that our friends in IT ops have today is their development teams want to move faster than often they're able to. Um, and some of that comes down to just the way basic corporate structure works that uh, developers in the line of business teams, they're in, you know, they go out and generate revenue. So they have certain speed expectations and innovation expectations that our friends in IT ops don't have because they're cost centers and they can't spend money to make money. You know, they get handed some wad of money at the beginning of the year and it's, hey, go make most efficient use out of the funds that were given. So these two audiences tend to have two different perspectives on, on how to spend or, or save money in different ways. So there, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also the IT ops people, they tend to view the world from layers two or three of the OSI model, whereas our friends that are developers, they tend to view the world at layer seven. So like an IT ops person, they might declare victory when a container gets created or when a VM gets created and they don't care what happens after that. Yeah. Whereas for the developer, that's where life begins. Like right. I need a VM now in 10 minutes, not three weeks through some ticketing process that takes, you know, nine people to touch on it. I need it in 10 minutes so I could test my code so I can go compete out in the marketplace. So one of the cool things about this is that there are tools for both of these sets of both of these audience members um, as part of this. So for example, uh, part of this that, that Ali and Val, I know you guys are both working on this internally, is uh, the Cisco Container Platform. So essentially what that is, is we're gonna be able to take 
the Kubernetes distribution that Google uses on GKE in the public cloud, they're handing that to us and we're making it so that it's easy for you to deploy that in a very automated way and then has some optional Cisco tools that are a part of that. So that way, if you're an IT ops person and your developer person says, hey, I need a container cluster, you're, you know, step one for you isn't going to the Kubernetes trunk and having to manually figure out how to download that and install it and, and do it in some supported way. Instead, you take this set of uh, scripts and this wizard-like interface that we're gonna give you, and in a matter of about five minutes, you can deploy this brand new container cluster out for this developer to use, and it has all kinds of bells and whistles that make that easy to, to create and destroy and make it easy to, to have some of these extra things that uh, IT ops person needs from a management perspective and that a developer needs from a developer perspective. Okay. So in a way, so the people that can actually talk to you guys about this, you know, if they want to learn more about the um, the NDA part of stuff that you, we're developing with Google or we being Cisco, uh, there's the people that, there's the developers, if they're looking for some type of on, on-premise solution or they could, it could also be in the cloud, right? It could be either one, but yeah. Either one. We'd love to talk to them. And then those who, the operations people who are looking to perhaps to create a Kubernetes cluster. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, why? And I, you know, I, I want to ask this, and and I don't mean it <clears throat> cheeky. I, I just, why do you think there's so much secrecy? Like, what, why the secrecy of, about it? Um, well, I think so. I, I come, I, I come to the answer to that question with with a little bit of background. I worked in HPIT for 17 years, so I I kind of yeah. see both sides of the equation here, and and some of this. And Val, I know you've seen me talk about this before. Is is that corporate structure stuff that we talked about before? When I was in HPIT, we got handed 1.75 percent of whatever they thought the revenue was going to be for that year. This was under Randy Mott's HPIT, mm-hmm. and that's exactly how much money we could spend that year, no more, no less. So, and and because IT is a cost center. Mm-hmm. The, the traditional approach to that is, well, what that means is we have to protect our capital assets, the yeah. physical machines. So that means that change control on that needs to be very tight. That, that's, that's the mindset that IP, IT tends to take uh, to this. And, and they call it shadow IT. Like developers don't call it shadow IT. They call it work. <laughs> right? it's, it's the IT guys that call it shadow IT because... Developers are going off and doing their own things orthogonal to whatever the rules are. And the rules right. are set up in a way that makes it so that you can get efficient use out of the resources. That's why there's so much security baked into that. Yeah. So that you have that as an insurance policy. So because if you get hacked, then you know you got all kinds of other problems. But the flip side of that coin is, you know, and I I wrote this in an article recently. Go pick pick your favorite company and go go Google that company's name and developer jobs. And you're going to find like Procter and Gamble has like 45 software engineer openings. Yeah. Right. You're going to find co- it's not just the tech companies that have software developers now. Oh, it's everyone. It's everybody that has yeah. it. And the reason is, you know, the comparison I make to this think about like a flip phone versus a smartphone. In which one of those experiences is it easier to change the color of one of the dial buttons? For the flip phone, it's a piece of hardware, right? That's like a six month change the plastic, like change manufacturing. With the smartphone, that's like an hour and like a million people can have it. Yeah. So what 
businesses have figured out is it's easier and more efficient to find innovation through software than it is through hardware. And the way that you do that is with iterations. If you take the idea that venture capitalists will tell you like for every 10 investments they make, if one pays off, then that's a good winning percentage. So if you take that same percentage to software releases, how many software releases do I have to have before I find some innovative solution? And what, they, what the business teams have figured out is if I use something like Kubernetes and microservices, I can do weekly releases. Back in HPIT, man, we were, we were smoking if we did four releases a year. <laughs> if you, if, so if, if you take that 10%, right, which scenario gives you the ability to find innovation more quickly? Four releases a year? Or fifty-two releases a year, like it's yeah, man. The more at bats you get, you're, you're better off. Yeah, exactly. It's about at bats. So you you have these two groups of people working for the same large company that have very different perspectives on what's important, and and I'll, to a large degree, what we're offering here with this hybrid solution with Google tries to meet them in the middle, so that it, it kind of understands both sides of the equation. It gives the IT folks management tools that enables them to very quickly give access to the resources that the developers need so that they can kind of get the control and the security they want, but developers can get this uh, access to resources on demand very quickly. Mm. Hey, you mentioned, uh, Pete, you mentioned CCP, which <laughs> we haven't announced yet, but that's okay. We will embargo this uh, podcast until after the announcement on the 31st. All right. But uh what since this is going to go live after then, we can talk about it a little bit. I think what's interesting for me is Kubernetes does it a bunch of amazing stuff. And in this announcement, we're going to talk about how it's 100% upstream Kubernetes. Yeah. So what is, why, why get this? What does this add on there? What's the additional value of Cisco Container Platform? Well, so there's a couple of things in there. So, so first, like you said, it's, it's 100% downstream. It, it's, it's got a little bit of Google goodness baked into it. So the, the same... Uh, the same bells and whistles that you have on GKE in the public cloud mm -hmm. with CCP as well. So wow. for a developer, they don't have to think about how things might be different in it, depending upon where I deploy my code, am I going to have different Kubernetes features? The answer is no, you're not. You're going to have the same Kubernetes features in both of these places. The, the thing that we're giving you are the automation when it comes to launching a new Kubernetes cluster. A, you know, there's, there's no you know, open source documentation to go look through. It's this very slick uh, wizard-like experience where you answer a couple of questions about how you'd like your uh, cluster to behave and you know, it makes it so. Uh, now there's optional pieces in there for, for Conteve so that you can take container networking and put profile-based management on top of that container networking. And then on, on top of that optional piece, there's also the optional piece of being able to hook that into ACI if you want to. Hmm. So imagine having the ability, if you're the network administrator, if, if you put together these two optional pieces that are part of CCP, now I can manage uh, bare metal hardware, VMs, and containers all from the same network console, namely the, the APIC controller, and, and be able to... to take those concepts that you love in ACI, like endpoint groups and contracts and those sorts of things, and have those apply uh, transparently to this Kubernetes world. So those are the things that are kind of above and beyond what you could just get if you try to download Trunk on Kubernetes. Nice. Now, is that all going to be available on the first release? Because I know the first release of the container platform is going to come out, uh, is going to be deployed on Hyperflex. 
Right. So you might actually know more about that than I do, because you mo you've been working more closely with the CCP <laughs> release, and I've been looking at more the the more general uh, Google stuff. The I know ev eventually when when we get to the summer and uh, all the product offerings are sort of aligned with each other and all the all the parts work and uh, work together the way they're supposed to, and we get the user feedback through this early access that we're supposed to. I know all that stuff's going to work. So the, the the stuff that we're releasing here. Uh, coming up at the end of the month that, like you said, we're under embargo until we have some of the release announcements at, uh, I know some of that stuff's happened at Cisco Live uh, Barcelona. Yep. Um, so some of that stuff is in there, That, but that's the eventual goal is is what I just described there. Okay, good. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much you knew. So, I mean, the bottom line is that it's initially going to be deployed on Hyperflex, and the upside of that is you're going to get all that hyper hyper-converged, you know, infrastructure. Yeah. Um, the downside is you don't have the benefits of it being uh, hardware agnostic until the second release, which will be a little bit yeah. uh, later in the summer. However, that doesn't mean that the Hyperflex version goes away. They will live concurrently. So you'll still be able to get it on Hyperflex, right. still be able to uh, take advantage of the bare metal capabilities, all that stuff. Yeah, there's some cool stuff they're doing with storage drivers and some things to optimize how Kubernetes runs on top of Hyperflex as part of that uh, initial announcement, like you said. But I mean, uh, the mo one of the two most consistent questions I got from the partner community when we briefed them on this in in Dallas at Partner Summit was, well, do I have to sell Hyperflex as part of this, or can I sell this as a software only solution? And you know that's important feedback. I mean, it, it we certainly think it's it's appropriate to run it on top of Hyperflex, but that doesn't mean later iterations might not run on any hardware that you want it to. The initial focus is Hyperflex because of some of these. Uh, because of some of these enhancements that we're making to like the storage drivers, like I said, and, and some of that stuff so that it will work optimally on top of Hyperflex. That doesn't mean it's never going to work anywhere else. Right. Right. I think there's a lot of customers that are going to want to run it on other platforms. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that next, that second release already. <laughs> yeah, that'll be cool. So thank you for those uh, insights about this, um, the announcement, you know, the partnership with Google. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. I think it has been mysterious, as you said, Val. I think people want to know more, but they don't even really know what to ask. So I think you've you've covered a lot of it. Um, is there anything else that we didn't that we didn't cover that you want to touch on? You know, because I dragged you down the CCP. No, um, that's okay. You know, <laughs> one of the one of the cool things that comes out of this is uh, vendor is is API metrics usage. Um, so th this part of it is already public. That, so Apigee is part of this solution. If you don't know Apigee, so Apigee is is one of the first API gateway solutions. You install it on-prem so that developers can have a modern RESTful API interface to some older backend service. Like maybe you've got some SAP data or maybe you've got some old Oracle database that you want your developers to be able to query information out of, but you don't want to just you know, give them an IP address and a port number to that database, you want to protect it and get some metrics with an API gateway so that as people are making requests against it, they're using API keys and they're they're using modern REST verbs. And you can tell some things about what the usage of that is. So this is part of that solution where, um, let's say I have my business logic running in GKE in the public cloud, I can reach back through this secure connection that I can set up with a, a bunch of Cisco validated designs that'll be part of this to go to go hook up with an AP, uh, an Apigee fronted 
Oracle database. And now all of a sudden, it doesn't matter where my business logic is, I can still get access to this legacy data. And then the flip side of that works as well. So we talked in the prep a little bit about Istio and some of the, there's some things in there that Google is providing as part of the solution that, um, that offers service catalog and service brokering capability where I can have my business logic running on-prem. And instead of as a developer, me having to bind to, let's say a natural language service that's running on Google, I could never replicate that kind of thing on-prem because of the just the amount of data they have going through those kind of early AI services like natural language or, or image recognition or- but, but you could call the APIs. But you could call the APIs, but, but Val, you know this, how big of a pain is that to set up your environment variables or your deployment.yaml file or like as a developer, there's a lot of hurdles you have to jump through in order to get access to an instance of that. And if I'm doing that for my application and Ali, you're doing it for your application and Val, you're doing it for yours, you do that across a couple dozen dozen applications. That's a that's a lot of developer, that's yeah. a, a lot of a lot of lost developer productivity. Well, with this service catalog and brokering capability that Google's bringing to the table as part of this. I just bind to the service. Everything else, an IT ops person can spin up the instances of the service on the public cloud, create a, a create a special uh, binding object that I pass in that automatically gets injected into my Kubernetes code in, into my the code for my pod, so that now I don't have to have that as part of my configuration as a developer. So that my my uh, my IT ops person can get metrics on what I'm using in the public cloud, much like Apigee gives them the ability to give metrics for what I'm using for my internal services. But then they can do things like rotate access keys every 30 days without having to force someone to redo it. Yeah. So there's yeah. all kinds of cool things you can do with that. So, so as a developer at heart, the thing I'm most excited about this are some of these API level services that Google is bringing to the table that are not only going to make it easier for the IT ops people to see how people are using these different things, but for I think this this kind of newer uh, hybrid applications that we're starting to see, where I've got my core business logic running on prem, and I still want to consume some of these public cloud services, that makes it way easier for me to do that as a developer. Yeah, I I think you'd explain that like far better than I've heard many people explain an API gateway and and just how those those can benefit you know an enterprise. Uh, you know, organization. So yeah, that's, that's fabulous. Well, just like, think about if, if you're like Target or Kohl's or, or Walmart, like how much, how much usage data do you have that you could, you could expose to your own developers to run public cloud business logic and connect back to those. Or maybe, you know, Apogee lets you monetize that stuff, like charge people access to that. Like, mm. you know, if, if I'm one of those 45 Procter and Gamble, um, developers, I might want to know something about how my products are selling at those different stores in different ways. Oh, absolutely. So, so that's yeah. what that API gateway stuff through Apigee and through the uh, service catalog and service brokering it opens up all kinds of avenues to let developers do all kinds of cool things with that data. Yeah. So forgive me for my ignorance here, but when you're talking about metrics and the way you're talking about them, it suggests to me that right now, if I have container set up or container clusters, it's not that easy to see what's going on inside them. Is that true? Well, it's easy to tell what's going on inside the containers. The specific metrics I'm talking about are, okay, so what if I have one of those containers? Let's take the, the simplest Kubernetes application is the, the sample guestbook application. 
So from a user perspective, the way that application looks is there's a text box. I type something into it. I push the submit button. What I typed shows up in a list of texts. So just like if you had a guest book at a hotel or at a mm -hmm. wedding, I can type in whatever text I want to there. Well, what if I wanted to enhance that? What if I wanted to deploy that on-prem, but now I want to enhance that and I want to get some sentiment analysis of what the text is. Are people saying positive things or saying negative things? Are, and how forceful are the, like what's the amplitude? Is somebody, is somebody really excited or are they moderately excited or are they really ticked off or are they moderately <laughs> ticked off? These are the kinds of things I might want to know. Well, in order to set, set up my own sentiment analysis on-prem, that's prohibitively expensive. And I, I wouldn't have enough text going through that system to be able to take advantage of it. But what about the Google Natural Language API? So what if I want to take each of those pieces of text and as they come in, I'm going to take that text and say, hey, Google Sentiment API, you know, give me a number between negative one and one that tells me something about how positive or negative the text is. And give me a, a, an integer that then tells me how enthusiastic that text is. Mm. So that, that's what I want to accomplish as a developer. Well, if I put on my IT ops hat, if I have 100 application teams and every one of them is using some mix of public API, I want to know who's using what APIs and how often they're using them, because then that have an, has an influence over what my Google bill is and what I can then go negotiate with Google later on uh, for part of my, my billing. So that's the kind of metrics I'm talking about. It's, it's not the metrics of the code running in the individual pods, but it's the when those pods want to go consume public cloud services, or in the Apigee use case, when you've got pods that want to go cons consume uh, legacy backend services, how are those things being used? And those are the kind of metrics I'm talking about. That's neat. So CCP or Cisco Container Platform makes those available. Um, are there other, or are you saying Apigee? Makes so, so Apigee makes that available when you front end legacy services for that. And then this uh, this broker, this GCP broker and service catalog will make them available when you're consuming GCP services, like the example I gave of the sentiment analysis. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So, hey, the way you've been talking about the two different users kind of for the solutions that are coming out here, um, you've been talking about the developers and uh, the IT uh, operations guys. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's interesting. I think most of the time when, in the past when we've talked about public versus private cloud, I kind of view it as the public cloud is what the developers would choose left to their own devices. Private cloud is sometimes foisted upon them because it gives you know, IT a greater level of control and perhaps allows them to protect data or at least believe they're protecting data. Um, and so the developers maybe feel like something's being taken away. Um, but I feel like that discussion is, it feels like with this, uh, it changes the discussion a little bit. It seems like the developers are still going to get all the stuff they want, and it's just it simply works better across the private and public cloud. Is that correct, or, or what are these solutions doing? Well, if I'm a developer, am I going to be stoked about this solution, or am I going to still feel like something's getting taken away? No, I think you're going to be stoked <laughs> about it because not because fundamentally, if I'm developing microservices, I need a Kubernetes cluster. And either I have to go stand it up myself, or I have to go today, I have to go ask my IT ops guys, and maybe I get one in six weeks. Okay. So what, what this does, right, because of what we're putting in the CCP, uh, IT ops person will be able to spin up one of these, you know, within a very small amount of time. So now as a developer, I don't have to go take some of my time and spin up my own cluster. It's actually easier for me to go ask IT ops to do it and I'll get it faster. Now, where that runs, whether that's on-prem with CCP or whether that's in the public cloud, 
for, for Google that may even be completely invisible to me as a developer. All I know is I have a cluster. I go configure my my kube cuddle to go talk to it, and I go start to you know deploy my pods in different ways. Then the additional thing I get as a developer here, the, the main thing that developers get as part of this is, is some of this API level stuff that we've just been talking about with Apigee and uh, the GCP catalog and and and, uh, and broker situation. So so that way I have now, now I have even more access to more pieces of data that I can use to help me make decisions in my core business logic code. And 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 the way it's the way that these tools uh, make it available, it's now far easier for me to do that so that as a developer, I get to concentrate on writing my code and don't have to deal with with any of those outside things. I mean, fundamentally, if you're if you write code for a living, that's what you want to go do. You want to go write code. You don't want to have to go stand up Kubernetes clusters. You don't want to go go have to to set up yeah, uh, all these configurations. The yeah, you don't want to have to worry about uh, binding to a particular service on a particular account on a particular public cloud. You don't have to deal with that stuff. You just you want to start writing your business logic. So for that for that set for the developer set the the speed at which that we're given the IT ops people to spin up the Kubernetes clusters and make it so easy to consume services, regardless of whether they're legacy on-prem or whether they're the, the, public, uh, the, the public cloud services, that all becomes far easier in this solution. Nice. Nice. All right, Pete. What, there's something in it for everybody. Uh, what else has got you excited these days, Pete? What's what's going on, man? What's going well, on with this whole like uh, world, crazy world we're living in right now? Well, <laughs> and, and you know, Val, because you and I have talked about this before. I, I think this is I, I love Kubernetes and think it's a, an amazing technology. But I think I think that there's cool there's some cool stuff that is sort of the next wave or two that's out there as well. Um, despite the horribly poor description that the name implies i'm a bit at big advocate of the serverless technologies yes um the way i like to mince that and, and if i i was at serverless conf last april in austin and mm -hmm. i think the way that the people that are in that community distinguish that is function as a service is the runtime that helps enable a serverless software architecture so serverless is the way the software architecture works so Along these same lines that we were just talking about, there's even less for the developer to have to worry about. They, just, they write code, upload it, it runs. You don't have to worry about is server A up, is container cluster A up. So it it kind of takes that to the next uh, the, the next step of that. And then the one beyond that is if we have function as a service runtimes, what if you could run them not just in a data center, but what if you could run them wherever there's a Linux shell? Mm. So, so for, for those that don't know serverless, let me, let me back up one second. So imagine for a minute you had uh, an environment where you had a bunch of containers that were already started up. Like a, it, takes, it takes seconds to spin up a container versus it takes minutes to spin up a VM. That's one of the, the they use different virtualization technologies to accomplish that speed. Um, and, and really the microservices revolution that we're seeing now that this, this Google announcement is so big a part of is developers taking advantage of that. Well, to, to get the next step, imagine you had an environment where you had a bunch of containers already spun up waiting to be used and they have language runtimes in them. So it might be Node, it might be Java, it might be .NET, whatever the case might be, but they don't yet have application code in them. So they're sitting there waiting to get invoked in some way. 
some event happens. So an event could be somebody drops a file in a folder somewhere, or an event could be an email comes in. Event could be all kinds of different things. Some event happens. And only at that precise moment does your code get loaded off of disk, injected into that container, it's executed, and then it's all shut off. That's what the function as a service runtime does. So in Amazon, it's Lambda. In IBM, it's OpenWhisk. There's Azure functions. There's Google functions. There's, there's all kinds of different uh, implementations of function as a service. So what that lets you think about, it lets you think about application architecture in a very different way. So instead of having, in the Kubernetes world, you would have pods that sit up and are always running. Well, in a serverless world, you have your code sitting on disk until the function as a service runtime needs to load them into one of those standby containers. So it lets you get far better utilization out of hardware. So what one of the things that Amazon is doing with this, Amazon has taken their function as a service runtime, what they used to run Lambda in the public cloud, and they've now taken that and uh, made it so you can download it and install it anywhere you want. It's called AWS Greengrass. It runs on uh, environment as small as a Raspberry Pi. Mm. Um, and as I, I talked about earlier in this session, it now also runs on any iOS device that Cisco, that Cisco offers. So now think about this. Okay, so I'm writing an application. Let's say I have a mobile application. and It's going to help me find inventory at the store that I've walked into. You know, maybe it's a grocery store, maybe your favorite retail outlet. That mobile app knows something about me, the consumer, because it it's it's told me it, it knows what store I frequent, it knows what products I typically look at. So today, if I had that application, why does it make me leave that store, go out to the public internet, deal with public uh, internet latency, and get information about the inventory of the store I'm physically sitting in? so I can help make more informed buying decisions. What if instead you could take that data and package it with functions that iterate over it and install it on the router that's in the store you're physically sitting in? That would give you sub-second response time and give you a much better customer experience than if you had to make that hop across the public internet. Yeah. Uh, so how, how do you figure out which which routers are out there that I could install this on, which functions, which data. Um, and so Scott Sanchez and I, uh, so Scott is Kip Compton's lead strategist. He came from MetaCloud like you did, Ali. I know you know Scott pretty yes, well. He did. So Scott and I last summer, we built this Skunkworks project called Function Router that helps you decide that, okay, given an inventory of devices and given an inventory of function as a service runtimes and an inventory of functions, how do I know in what situation, which device do I invoke which function on? So it's kind of like a fancy CDN or kind of like a, a DNS lookup, but for functions. Um, and yeah, so we, we did this Skunkworks project uh, over the summer just because we thought it was cool. And um, we've gotten a, a lot of really good response from the serverless community and from the internal uh, Cisco community as well. I mean, like I said, it's Kubernetes is like the current wave of technology and, and we're talking about with function writer it's not just serverless it's serverless on the edge so it's a mm -hmm. couple of waves out there it's it's not for everybody quite yet but those are the kinds of things that that i spend my time looking at you know in my role in gpo i'm the subject matter expert on all cloud technology so it's not just what people are using now 
or what they could be using three years from now, but what might be what might they be using five to eight years, five to ten years from now? And those are the kinds of things that that I'm thinking about is Kubernetes to serverless, serverless to serverless on the edge. You have such a good way of explaining it. I feel like it's very clear. It's it's all it's Mr. Covington, man. It's because it's because I had to learn coding back in sixth grade. That's what did it for me. <laughs> right? When the when the marketing people can understand it, and that's me, not Val. Uh, then you know you're doing a good job because that that was a really good explanation. So thanks so much. But it sounds like you have a really cool job, man. I you know, and Scott right? Sanchez get to go off and just create your own little skunk work projects. That's pretty neat. I know. I'm I'm so lucky. You know I. Having worked for a big company before, I was honestly a little nervous about how this was going to go once uh, Clicker was acquired. But I, I that honestly, feeling. I could, I know you do. <laughs> I honestly could not be happier. The the management style here and the encouragement to just go let people go explore things that are cool that may or may not work out, like that's so baked into the management mindset here that I'm I'm really fortunate that I'm working here and that you know there's lots of different ways Cisco could go still. Yeah, and living the dream. I know. Nice. Well, hey, we're running up against the end of our time here, Pete. Um, and because we were talking about how good you are at explaining things, are you going to be on the stage anywhere, or um, where else can people learn from you in the near future? Well, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, I'm not going to be at Cisco uh, Live Barcelona. I will be at Cisco Live in uh, the U.S. You're coming in Orlando in the spring. I was scheduled to be at DevNet Create, but um, I had a personal thing come up. And my good friend Tom Davies, who's on the DevNet team, he's going to be talking about Function Router at uh, at DevNet Create here in April. Cool. Awesome. What about on uh, social media? Uh, social media, it's a really long story, but when you have a generic name like Pete Johnson, you have to <laughs> creative for Twitter, hand, Twitter handle. But I'm at, I'm at NerdGuru, N-E-R-D-G-U-R-U. And uh, you know, I'll, I've got a slot on the Cisco Cloud blog uh, in December. I had a I had an entry about Apigee, the one that's coming out here probably about the same time this podcast will become available. Um, is about what we're doing as part of this the Google solution with the CSR 1000Ds and Google Cloud routers, and how do we get those guys to talk to each other? Oh, about nice. once about once a month between now and when we go live with the Google solution on the Google Cloud blog, I'll explore a, a different subset of the solution set. So if you want to learn it a little bit at a time, you can go there to the Cisco Cloud blog. Um, I've also got a regular slot on uh, Network World. I just did a, a review of what happened at AWS reInvent on what I called like the, the five fronts of the cloud war. Um, which includes Kubernetes and serverless and some other things. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy to find with lots of stuff out there. <laughs> Amongst all the other Pete Johnsons. So. I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. Really, I, I learned a bunch of stuff today, and um, I'm sure our listeners did too. So so thank you for the time, and I definitely want you to come back in a few months. Uh, oh, definitely, I'd love that. Explain more, because. I have a feeling a few things will change between now and six months from now. Well, I, they absolutely will. And that's that's why we're getting customer input on this and then just, did, just didn't throw it out there and say, this is the answer. Like we want, we want the customers and the partner ecosystem to tell us what the answer is. And that's what we're building with Google. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks, Pete. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we'll see you.